This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Dr. Amy Hogan, along with her son Matthew, talk about common sense with COVID. Is there a need for panic? How do viruses actually spread? Should we be closing down churches? Well, let's find out. Here's Dr. Amy Hogan with her son, Matthew. Hello and welcome to One Body Stewarding God's Creation. This is Dr. Amy Hogan. It's been a little while since I did a show, uh, but was talking to Donetta the other day and, well, just told her the Holy Spirit was knocking at the door. Um, Also, I brought along my son, Matthew Hogan. He recently helped do a show on homeschooling. Uh, That was for the Carathon, and then they uh, republished it a few weeks later. But before we get started, let's tell you our topic, and we'll also pray. So our topic today is common sense with COVID. I know this seems a little counterintuitive because maybe you've heard a lot of media hype, a lot of media press, and different things that are going on in our culture. It almost seems anything but commonsensical. So we're going to kind of just dive into it, get some ideas going, and uh, you know, possibly even do another show in the future because when we started writing notes for this show, we realized you almost there's almost too much. It, it's so much going on right now. So we want to just be able to be really just down to earth, level-headed, but also talk about how it's affecting people psychologically and also how it's affecting the church. Before we do that, let's go ahead and say a prayer, everyone, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And um, like I said, let's introduce our guest today. I'll let him say just a few words. This is my son, Matthew Hogan. And um, he's growing up. He's now 18 years old. Hey, Matt, tell us about what you're hoping to do this fall. So I was originally planning on going to Benedictine College, but due to complications with COVID, I am now not planning on doing that and instead may be heading down to Ave Maria University in Florida to try to get to a more stable state and a little bit warmer of weather for the fall and winter months. So it has been completely changed up all thanks to this COVID-19. I was also thinking of doing totus tuus, but that as well was changed. And on top of all that, my graduation was canceled. So yes, yes. So when you say you were going to do COVID-19, what you're recalling is, is that you were hired to do totus tuus. Correct. Did I mess that up? A little bit. (laughs) You said COVID-19 messed up totus tuus, which that was that the diocese actually called off the vacation bible school evangelization teams they said stay home this is too risky uh you had actually written a letter uh to the bishop and to the teams that were trying to decide whether to do totus to us whether to do prayer in action is there any one particular thing that stands out to you as to why you would say it would have been a good thing to go ahead and do totus to us prayer in action 
Well, the science behind all of this has really been changing throughout the entire thing. When it was originally came out from China, we had no idea what was going on because the World Health Organization and the Chinese government lied to the U.S. and the CDC. And we had no idea what the heck was going on with it because the death rate seemed insanely high, 10 to 15 percent. And... It seemed highly infectious, so we had no idea what was going on, and then it actually started to spread across the world, and we had more information that was just very conflicting, and so when it all began back in the early months of the year, we didn't know what was going on, and it was fair to actually say, be cautious. However, as time went on and we started to get into April and May, we started to get the virus in the U.S. a lot more. We realized the death rate was a lot lower than we previously thought, and in fact, it wasn't very dangerous at all for people who are healthy and especially for children. So because of all that, it just didn't seem to be very reasonable, especially when the death rate that we knew of had been dropping off dramatically from the 10 to 15% all the way down to about the 1% that we had it at in early to mid-May. And in fact, the CDC is now releasing statistics that say it could be as low as 0.2% by this time of year. And so it's not terribly surprising that it continues to go down and it could possibly even go down further yet and because of all that I thought you know what it's probably reasonable that we can hold this because most people who are going to have young kids the young kids will be completely fine and their parents will be most likely fine too because as long as you're healthy the odds of this harming you are rather low if the people feel however that their risk is too high then they wouldn't have to send their kids and so the parents who would probably not be threatened by it would still be able to have their kids get the benefit out of totus tuus that is otherwise always there, while at the same time having little to no risk from COVID-19. And so it felt plenty reasonable to have it. And I guess that's a good lead into what is herd immunity? So I'm gonna to speak to that just a little bit. So COVID-19, it's a new strain of a new virus. I shouldn't say that, it's a new strain of an old virus. Uh, when I was researching coronaviruses, which is what COVID-19 is, it's a coronavirus, uh, in January, I was like, what's all this hype about? So I started researching coronaviruses. It said that one in 10 head colds is a corona type. And also, when we go out and get tested, like, for example, there's certain antibodies. The antibodies that get tested might have coined off of or keyed off of like five of their known corona types. Not all corona types have been typed, if you will. Like, we haven't studied every single genetics feature for every single coronavirus. So in my mind, it was like, okay, one in 10 head colds is a corona. Now, is this a new strain? Is this something that's more virulent? Well, possibly, and for some people, but for other people, it might be the sniffles or just a plain old head cold, which is what we're seeing in a lot of communities. So what is herd immunity? I think that's sort of a strange uh, you know, term that's getting misused a lot. When we think of herd immunity, it means that everyone has had the actual wild-type virus. It has nothing to do with a vaccination. And I know that companies are scrambling to get a vaccination going, uh, but, you know, to what avail? And what's particularly disturbing is is that to, to achieve herd immunity, we actually need to be around each other. There used to be a time like uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, maybe before that, if someone got chickenpox in the community, then they would all get together because they wanted the kids at a young age to get the chickenpox. The earlier you get exposed to the chickenpox, for example, the less virulent it is. And it seems like the case with this virus as well, the younger the child usually. Now I know there's always outliers, but usually the less affected they are. So in all actuality, 
herd immunity is not being obtained right now with socially distancing orders. And that's kind of ironic, you know, don't you think? What you have to do is you have to look at Sweden. So the entire response from the entire world, entirely different states and entirely everyone else has been completely different. You have anything from a complete lockdown, heavy orders requiring masks and social distancing, all the way to Sweden. And Sweden, in defiance of the entire rest of the world, was one country that decided, you know what, we're not gonna lock down. We're going to protect our elderly Eventually, they didn't do that at first, to be fair. They, it took them a little bit to actually get that down. But once they did that, they started to reduce their deaths and their death rate, though at first it spiked, it started to go down really quickly because they started to achieve herd immunity. And now as of this date, they have essentially zero deaths per day. And that's an extreme outlier in the world because most countries are still dealing with a significant number of deaths per day, while Sweden basically got through it. They didn't overwhelm their healthcare system, which isn't even that great of a healthcare system because it's socialized. And turns out they got through it and they're fine because they achieved herd immunity, which of course nobody expected quite like that because everybody thought they were all going to die because back then everybody was still freaked out about it but Sweden decided to look at the science of the declining death rate because China honestly it's hard to trust China on pretty much anything so they were smart they didn't decide to trust the previous death rate they decided to stay open and guess what they're fine okay yeah. a similar model was also practiced in Florida and even though Florida is kind of spiking in cases right now they are doing relatively fine when it comes to deaths and hospitalizations and should get through it without too much issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of disconnect between what people think is going on in society and what's actually happening in the healthcare world. And uh, yeah, like you say, there's less and less deaths. Uh, what's also hard though is people that are coming and going and and you know, there's there's this sheer sense of panic, and and it's terrorizing the people. That truly bothers me. Um, even our uh, my father-in-law, Matt's grandpa, he's seriously afraid to go visiting anyone because he's afraid he'll die from the virus. He's thinking that this virus is a death sentence, and I think it's because the uh, mainstream media has has told him so. And so what's really, really troubling with me socially about this virus is the sheer sense of panic. And what do they always tell you in a situation of, you know, um, something going wrong or, you know, some emergency? They say, always say, don't panic. And it seems like the media and the culture have desired to incite a sense of panic into the people. So, well, the entire point of the panic is the fact that it's an election year. And because of it's an election year, I like to say that if Americans agree on something, can disagree on something, then they will. It's pretty simple. So I think in this case, the leftist side of the population is thinking to themselves, we need a problem that we can attack Donald Trump on because he helped the economy, he got more jobs, he lowered taxes, he built the wall, he filled a lot of his promises that though we can debate for hours upon how great or how good or bad they may or may not have been. In general, he did help the U.S. as a whole, and therefore, it seems very likely that he would be elected again if, if it came to the election and nothing was 
raised as an issue against him. So what's happening is, is you're seeing it being made into an issue because there is an issue that is needed for the election in the case of the Democrat Party and the leftist side of the population. And in the case of someone like Trump and the right, they just want to be smart and keep as many people healthy and alive as possible, which is completely fair. But when you have one side of the population that's trying to claim that you're evil and killing grandma just for not wearing a mask, it makes it into a completely different issue and it conflates so many different things and nobody is even following the science as you as can be noted by the fact that Sweden, which did not lock down, is fine. Florida, which has not really locked down, is fine. Yeah. Many pl- in any other place in the world that is not locked down has been fine to this point. So the truth is, is it's just been a conflated issue and that means that we're not going to have True answers probably until this thing is over. Yeah. I sometimes say to the patients, I think I think we'll look back in, you know, one to five years and say, Oh, that's how we should have handled it. That's what we should have done differently. I think right now uh, people are just really thoroughly confused. Uh, also, I think that they think there's only one virus in the world. You know, that, uh, you know, it's interesting that if you look at virology, that even at conservative estimates, there's over 320,000 different viruses that infect mammals. So it's like, you know, everybody that gets a sniffle right now, they're heading into my office in a panic or calling the office in a panic saying, do you think I have it? Do you think I have the that's virus? Not even, that's not even counting bacteria or others. Right, other, other sources of, of sickness. Right, right. So interestingly right now this viral science has gone totally off the rocker so we're talking about common sense with covid i'm not sure there is any in this culture right now but the second topic we wanted to touch on was how is the virus affecting people mentally this has been a really tough time of year and it started you know in march in our culture you know firsthand people started to lock down staying at home, schools were shut after spring break, all sorts of things happened. And it, it didn't go well. It didn't go well for the people mentally. Uh, a little story that I want to tell you, actually two ladies, that they were in there, I mean, one of them is, I want to say 95, another one is 101. And so we'll call the first lady uh, Margaret. And she's, you know, 95, and she was living at home by herself, but she had lots of people that would stop in and check on her. Her son would come and have lunch with her every day. And um, right at the time of the virus, they decided to stop everything, stop visiting Margaret so that she wouldn't get the virus. Well, Margaret can't go very, go anyplace really by herself. She's a bit frail, but she has enough you know, energy and stamina to live by herself still, but she really can't you know, drive herself to the store. She can't drive herself to church, etc. So all of a sudden, she was all alone, locked in at home basically by herself, and uh, devastating. The thing she liked to do the most was to go to the beauty shop, and as you know, that was shut down too. So uh, within about a month of the time of the original stay-at-home orders, and you know, if you're not essential, don't go anywhere, uh, she had a telemedicine visit with me and her son and I could tell that she was extremely depressed. So in this situation, they may not have killed grandma with the virus, but they killed grandma mentally because she was now completely, utterly alone. 
It was the saddest thing I ever saw. So I said to them, I said, you know, listen. All for the grand total of like only 50 or so cases in the county, too. Yeah, at that time, especially, maybe more now, but at that time, 50 cases in the county. Um, and poor Margaret suffered exceedingly. And, you know, it's like you snuffed out her life because no visitors, uh, no hair appointments, uh, no visits to anyone else, no, no, you know, nothing social. No church. No church. So it was really, really, really tricky. Um, so affecting people in a huge way. And I think that also the rate of suicides has highly gone up. Do you want to speak to that, Matt? Uh, well, the statistics still aren't completely 100% in, but the best one you can realize is when you look at suicide hotlines from across the country, from the beginnings of the lockdown, the suicide calls for the hotline have gone up anywhere between 500 to 1,000 percent, and sometimes even over that because people are stuck at home, they're kept away from other people, they're not allowed to go to work, they're not allowed to go to mass or church or whatever, and they just feel hopeless because, as we talked about earlier too, people are scared of this thing because... The media and the coverage has made it so that way it seemed like people are going to die. And so people just, they lose all hope. Yeah. And so uh, one thing I like to tell people is no matter how virulent a virus is, it can't just jump you. It can't just jump, you know, onto you and attack you, you know, like a bear or embarrass them and want to run from you if, you if you don't have, you know, if there's no reason to attack you, they're going to run from you. But this it depends um, on the bear species, Mom. I suppose. Not really a great analogy. <laughs> okay. But the point being is uh, this this virus isn't waiting in every corner planning to jump you. And I think people with the with the media coverage and, uh, you know, back and forth scientific coverage, do this, do that, don't do this, do do that. Uh, you know, I think that they are really frightened uh, in a way that is, is, is un, uncanny. Another story, the 101-year-old lady... Well, let's let's call her Mary. So Mary uh, was at home, and she does have a caregiver, but her she's actually for 101. She's very very spry and alert, and she would have weekly card games with about 15 of her other favorite uh, friends, and so that would what be what she looked forward to, especially in that, and also her church. So of course the card games were shut down immediately. The church shut down, you know, pretty quickly thereafter. And, you know, her other favorite thing to do is to watch sports. <laughs> so then all the sports teams were shut down, and she couldn't watch sports. She couldn't go to cards. She couldn't go to church. Uh, so literally her, too, I saw her fall into a deep, dark uh, despair almost because everything that she loved in life was, was taken away. So, so poor Mary and poor Margaret. Um, they have, you know, come through it, but... You know, things are barely starting to open up, but imagine their excitement when the hair salons, just something little like, you know, a haircut and a, a perm can get a, a little lady back on track. Or even just a visit, a visit from their friends or their sons or whomever. It just, it just makes a huge difference in the lives of someone who is otherwise shut in. And so they went from, you know, it's kind of on the brink kind of stuff. You know, they went from moderately shut in just because of their age to completely shut in. It kind of reminds me of, I was listening to a commentator who does a not-for-profit, I'm jumping ship completely a bit here, but in Hawaii, 
you know, speaking of deaths and what happened in the aftermath of physically, mentally of the people, there's, there's a gentleman that works in Hawaii, and he has a not-for-profit that helps advocate for getting food and money and things to people in third-world countries like Somalia. And his commentary was, if our culture and our economy shuts down for two months, people on the fringe, people on the brink of starvation, or people that are in hunger, all of a sudden they are starving. Like, they have no hope at all. Like, well, people actually, in this country... Well, actually, if you look country, around, a lot, of the, a lot of the places that accept donations, either cash or otherwise, have had a decrease in what they've been receiving lately because people with the economy going down and jobs... We lost 22 million at the height. It's still 14 million jobs less than we were before COVID. And the thing is, is with that happening... They can't give as much. You can't give as much, no. And They're scared. They're socially scared for their own families then. That ultimately leads to less donations, and the people who really rely on those donations are going to be left shorthanded when they already are exceedingly shorthanded, and it'll cause problems in that regard as well. And that's before you even get into the Third. great distrust that everyone has for other people now. Right. Like, you almost can't donate your clothes because people aren't sure they want to take the clothes. You can't donate food because people are afraid, you know, even especially the things that have been touched or fresh food. Well, think of it this way. Libraries are having mandatory, mandatory three-day quarantines of books before they even sanitize their books and put them back on the shelves. That's literally what basically libraries across the country are doing right now. Is so you whenever even, they get a you book can't back, even, you can't even borrow a book in COVID. Not really. No. <laughs> you lose you lose access to libraries. So that large amount a, of information. I'll, I'll say gone. that was a big deal for our family because since we homeschool, you know the kids like to read a lot, and um, which is a blessing. Uh, but they they haven't been able to get a hold of library books like they used to, and it, it was kind of a depressor, a downer. And especially in the summer, you know, we're not doing school, so. A lot of times they would spend a lot of, you know, afternoons just with a book and um, just enjoying their free time. And not being able to get a book, it's kind of a depressor. It's kind of a downer. So another one thing that was something that was a simple pleasure taken away from people in our culture. So, oh, and since you can't go out and do anything, books are something that you would probably turn to. So on top of that, even if, say, the library's closed, so you can't get books there, so maybe you want to go to the online library, well, all those books are checked out for like four months because everybody and their dog has decided to go for all of them because yeah. it's the only way, it's one of the way, it's one of the things people have turned to in the lack, when they lack all normal forms of entertainment. entertainment. And again, people people just don't trust each other anymore. And you can find any you can find a plethora of videos online of people who just not wearing a mask might go into a store and basically get mobbed. They don't even they may even have a medical condition for not wearing a mask, but the people will mob them anyway because the people are so scared of that one person who just isn't wearing a mask. The person's probably socially distancing and trying to be smart about what they're doing. And yet they get mobbed because nobody trusts each other anymore, and it's a terrible thing. Yeah. So the question might be is how do we learn to love and trust one another again, you know, and fear not what can kill the body, but fear what can kill the soul, which, you know, we know that the evil one's having a heyday with all of this, you know, distrust and unlove and uh, misinterpretation of everyone's intentions in society. So it's, it's, really, getting, it's really getting ugly. And now, to boot with all of that, there's a lot of governors calling for no schools reopening, especially public schools. 
I hope that Catholic schools will find a way to play through this. I know that a lot of Catholic schools, though, have accepted government money, so that makes them pray. Just go listen to our homeschooling talk. You can get in on one of the Catholic homeschools. That's true, too. Fantastic. Good point. So if you're not going to go to public school or your public school isn't starting, uh, seatonhome.org with Seton Home Study Schools is a great place to start. And they are fantastic. We just uh, also need to be careful with those public schools. A lot of the teachers' unions are starting to demand socialism, which is, mind you, condemned by the Catholic Church. So, yeah, you can't be a socialist or a communism and be a Catholic. Sorry, um, it just doesn't work. Um, the Catholic Church has always condemned allowed people to have free rights to their own. Seen. Yes, yes. So, uh, do you want to explain that anymore? Uh, that's pretty much the gist of it: socialism, communism. The gist of communal ownership as a government is condemned by the church as a legitimate total heresy. And the right to have your own property is always been um, defended defended and protected, right? So, uh, you know, the other thing is, is uh, I think they're saying, you know, health care for all, which is just not financially feasible for any government to mitigate all risks and to cover all healthcare and to do it in a good way. Um, it's also against the teachings of the Catholic Church because another doctrine of the Catholic Church is the principle of subsidiarity, which is essentially the teaching that every single problem should be handled as at the lo- as at the smallest or most local possible area. So like when it comes to healthcare, generally that should be handled by the person's personal doctor, not by a general far-reaching treatment because each person is unique. In the case of socialized medicine, you're literally basically giving the government the ability and the... You're basically saying, government, take care of everything at the federal level. In a country like the United States, 368 million people, something like that, that doesn't work very well. Even in a country of a couple million people, like a lot of the countries in Europe, really doesn't go very well. Their standard of care, since they've socialized their health care, has gone way down. It, the amount of wait time it takes to actually get to see a doctor, the amount of people who actually die from cancers and the like because they just can't get treated, has gone way up. It's insane. Like even if you go to Canada, which did it, I which socialized their healthcare probably what 10, 15 years ago now, it's been going downhill ever since. And the only way to get good care is to pay privately obscene amounts of money. Quite literally, you can find um, uh, a video by even Steven Crowder did it 10 years ago when they went to, and they went and literally went into the healthcare system and they are were looking to find a doctor for a skateboard injury. And they're like, they're, they were sitting there and they're like, can we get in? And they're like, well, in three hours, a nurse will see you and they'll see if they can get you to see a doctor and give you an estimate on the time. 10 hours later, they still hadn't seen a doctor. And so the next day they tried a clinic, they didn't have a chance. The nurse at the door literally said, yeah, you guys aren't going to see anyone, but hey, if you want to pay 900 bucks, we can get you in. (laughs) Yeah, wild, huh? What I don't think people understand is to actually have health care, you have to have an affluent society. If you go to third world country, there's a reason that there's a shortage of doctors. It's just not available. They don't have the funding to keep the doctors available to them. So, you know, in our culture of affluence, we've been really very um, spoiled, if you will, to have doctors and to have emergency rooms. It's an affluent society that is able to sustain a healthcare system. And even though the, the American system may spend an exorbitant amount of money, it's because Americans typically 
have had the desire to defend and protect all lives. And nobody lacks health care either in the U.S. That's a common argument that people use against it. But if somebody goes into the ER, we have a very robust safety net of Medicare and Medicaid to help people who can't afford it pay for their health care. It's not an issue in the U.S. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. has actually done really well in regards to handling COVID, even though you're never going to hear that from the media. The U.S. has not even gotten close to overwhelming their health care system. Everybody has had a hospital bed. Everybody who's needed one has had a ventilator. And we're starting to use different things like hydroxychloroquine to handle the virus because they do have effects on it. And therefore, people are having shorter hospital stays, there's less deaths, and we're getting better faster. Yeah. Another interesting thing is uh, a doctor in Texas was using Pulmacort, which is a child's um, asthma medication. And uh, it, it really has helped people because it decreases inflammation of the lungs. And, you know, it's very benign and it's um, very helpful. So, you know, certainly could help people. It hasn't caused harm to people. And he's seeing his patients get well very quickly. So I think my American innovation about, absolutely helps. There's about 15 different pharmaceuticals that are currently being used to varying degrees of, of effect and useful and helpfulness across the nation. And you're not going to hear that anywhere except when you actually just sit down and research it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about churches. How has COVID-19 affected our church? Probably going all day, couldn't we, Matt? Quite literally. <laughs> all right. This is One Body Stewarding God's Creation with Dr. Amy Hogan. Welcome back to One Body, Stewarding God's Creation with Dr. Amy Hogan. One body, one body, stewarding God's creation. I'm also joined by my son, Matthew Hogan. Previously homeschooled with Seton Home Study. You might have heard him uh, speaking several uh, weeks ago about what his homeschool experience has been. And also just to remind you, if you do need a way to get your kids at quality Catholic education, seatonhome.org or Seton Home Study, just look it up online and they can assist you. They do have online support, fully accredited Catholic homeschool. Not so, an official sponsor. Yes, we are not an official sponsor. <laughs> that was a pretty good commercial though, right? Today our topic is common sense with COVID, and we're certainly not sure that anyone has any common sense with COVID, but we're trying to put a little bit of a spotlight on what can we do, how can we do it better, and um, one thing is the churches. It's been really disturbing. It's been hard on the laity, especially, to shut down the churches, and I know that in the beginning we didn't really know what we were facing. We didn't understand uh, the virus very well, so I think everyone was legitimately scared Oh, we've gone through some statistics. Of course, we don't have them all. But the good news and the bad news is there is a virus. Uh, but the good news is it's not killing everyone. And you have about a nine. We have like a ninety-nine point eight percent chance of surviving this virus, which is great odds. And so, anyway, what we're finding now is when the, they've reopened churches, they've reopened some things this summer. We're seeing a spread of the virus. So now some churches are even closing back down. And uh, my sister this morning, we were texting back and forth, and she took a picture of her dog. Her dog's name is Twix. 
and uh, she had her Bible open. She was doing her church on her back porch, and she said, Twix's church attendance has gone way up since coronavirus. So <laughs> her dog is sitting on the back porch with her and her Bible, and they're doing church outdoors and online on the deck this fine Sunday morning, which uh, she can't go to church. So it, it's really sad. It's, it's changing the face of the culture because apparently uh, some people have decided that churches are not essential or that singing in church is not allowed. And uh, what I was, should say to, to, to people is, you know, we have this separation of church and state. Well, folks, they can't have it both ways. You know, the church is not ruled by the state and the state is not ruled by a church. You know, it's not a theocracy. We give, we give it credence of that. However, the Constitution did begin uh, with, you know, that we believe that people have inalienable rights because they were given to them by God. The best document to look for the actual recognition of God is actually the Declaration of Independence, which explicitly mentions God and the fact that a nation should be founded upon principles and England was not allowing the U.S. at the time. Or anybody to practice their religion freely. Well, not specifically that, but just it was violating the rights of the people and the governments of the local states by its actions. And so the U.S. is like, you know what, we're going to be free now. Goodbye. And so they left, and now we're getting infringed upon arguably even more than the United States was being infringed on by England by our own government. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go through, like, is this a good time to go through the Titler cycle where different cultures go through? Like, in history, you always tell me history repeats itself. History does repeat itself. And we're kind of coming back around to this time where people have gotten kind of lazy. You could talk about this for an hour, though, so with only a single segment, it'd be hard to really cover it all. But the gist of it is, is a lot of what you see in the current COVID being blown out of proportion as we've talked about for over a half hour now, and literally churches getting shut down, mobs rioting and looting across the U.S. I mean, literally Catholic churches are being burned. Statues of the Virgin Mary are being torn down. This is things that are actually happening. Look it up. I'm not kidding. You're not going to see it hardly covered at all, but this is happening coast to coast. Right. And the thing that's fascinating about this is it's very reminiscent of a couple different times in history. And we can look at Rome. We can look at the French Revolution. We can look at the Russian Revolution. And they have very similar characteristics in all of this, including the fact that it started to become mob rule. Yeah. The people started to just be like, give us free stuff and we'll vote for you in the time of Rome. Decadence. True decadence. And that's exactly what the Democrat Party is basically running on anymore. Vote for us and we'll give you free health care, free college, and a basic income for everyone. Well, it's also known as socialism, but that's what they're promising. Well, but it's also called dependence. And that's also what the Russians promised back before they went communist. And you know, when you kill about 35 million people like Stalin did, then... You get some power in your court, you know? So we're looking at a time where, you know, there there is... freedom to choose right now and I guess what I'm hoping is we don't have to go all the way back under all the way back under rule of tyranny to but, to have our freedom again you know the so likelihood back, of that actually to, happening is pretty low thankfully because well, in the United States I wouldn't have predicted still, this four months ago either that's true but in the United States there is a good number of people who are still 
in favor of traditional values and religion and God. Yeah, so we do have some hope. I hope, so, I hope there's hope. But back to churches. I guess I can't not talk about Jesus. I really want to talk about Jesus and uh, honoring him in the Eucharist. I think that we've gone a little too far because there's now bishops and people that are refusing communion on the tongue. Um, in the history of the church... Let's put it this way. The fact that the Catholic Church is shut down almost entirely is just absurd on its face. It's basically... Not canonical. It has, it's unprecedented, essentially. Since 400 AD is what I was told. It's long. That, so, so even in the plague times, you know, it was not shut down. And part of it is because Jesus gives us hope. If we don't believe in Jesus and the true presence of the Eucharist, you know, we don't have the true faith. So we need to have Jesus as our medicine, both physically, spiritually, mentally, socially. Jesus is the highest, the highest. He's the utmost. He's the pinnacle of our faith. The Eucharist is the source and summit, is it not? So anyway, back to communion on the tongue. So what I'm trying to say is communion on the tongue was always the norm. Um, there was a time in the 1960s when uh, Cardinal Bernardin decided to encourage it on the hand and try to get through the Catholic Conference of Bishops. He did so, but only after one vote failed. You're not covering everything. What yeah, you really yeah. got to do is you got to go back to about 200 A.D. Back then. Oh, that's way back there. The, I'm just going with the current history. Ken. Not meaning to go with the entire history. <laughs> doesn't. You have to look at the historical precedent of it before you can actually really tell anything. Okay. The very early church, from the very beginning, it was the norm to have communion on the tongue. Didn't break that. And having communion on the tongue like that. They actually did experiment with other ways to do it. The most famous experiment they did was, I believe, around 300 AD, though I could be wrong on the specific date. Essentially what they did is, is they would veil the hands, place the, place the host on the veil, and the person would receive off the veil without ever touching the host. They would bow their head down and put their tongue to the even that, veiled hand. Even that form of receiving it on the hand resulted in people being more lax, less respectful, and a it just it, a general it was, lowering of the respect for the Eucharist. It was terrible, and the thing is, is it was immediately shot. It was shot down pretty fast because of how bad it got so fast, and it was shocking because it was still a, it was a highly respectful way of receiving it on the hand in comparison to the way we do it today. And so, get rid of that historical. And so, with that historical precedent, you'd think they would never go back. And for about. 1700 years they never really considered it did they but then in the 20th century as mom was pointing out they had this vote thing and her actual explanation is the continued story is after failing it by one vote he then pulled the retired bishops and then got it to pass which yeah. is a little bit strange <laughs> yeah. admittedly and yeah. the thing about it is is also in around the year 1984 i think i could again be yeah, wrong on the specific date Pope St. John Paul II. I think it was 1980. It might have been 1980. But Pope St. John Paul II put a committee together who researched this about respect for the Eucharist. And so they put this document together and Pope St. John Paul II sealed it with his own signature, essentially saying that, yes, this is doctrine, and disseminated it to the entire church as doctrine. And it includes an injunction that says in absolutely 100% clear terms that the Eucharist is to be received upon the tongue and basically without exception. Right, that there is no reason ever to deny Eucharist on the tongue because that is actually the liturgical and, and typical way that had been done for centuries. So, so now we come into this virus season. So it's almost like there's an attack on the Eucharist again. And, you know, 
I, I love all of you. I want you to know that. But I think we've all been duped a little bit. Like up until about 10 years ago, I received on the hand because that's all I knew. So I think that people really are taught now. It's almost like Eucharist on the hand is the usual instead of Eucharist on the tongue. And as a Eucharistic minister, you know, when I was uh, doing that at, at back in the day, um, it, it kind of was weird to me when people would receive on the tongue. You know, it was weird to me because it was the minority that would do so. It wasn't that it was a bad thing or that I you know, didn't like them. It was that it was just different because most people received on the hand. So anyway, the story goes is I was discerning this and um, it seemed to me that receiving on the tongue was more humble, that as a child would receive, you know, food from its mother, you know, in a spoon or whatever, uh, that, you know, that the, the, the child puts its, its mouth open, uh, receives from the mother, from the hand of the mother, its first foods, its first morsels. And so, again, it's also the traditional and arguably doctrinal way of receiving the Eucharist. And the thing is, is that despite that, despite the fact that the hand is technically the abnormal and possibly not, shouldn't be done at all. It has become so commonplace. And then in this COVID thing, basically every single bishop comes out and says, you know what? No more tongue. And that's just... Or better on the hand than on the tongue, which is, which is really kind of a bummer. In my medical side of things, I think to myself, think of all the things that you would touch with your hand that you would never lick. And the other part is, if a priest was to touch your hand giving out Jesus, he would never know because it is a dry surface to dry surface. Now, if a priest was to touch your tongue, he would absolutely know because it is his dry hand touching a wet surface. So actually the knowledge of whether or not you're transmitting virus because of wet to, you know, either dry to dry or dry to wet would actually go up. You would actually know if you touch someone but to my knowledge, most of the time, there is some degree of hand-to-hand -hand contact between people. With all those people making hand-to-hand -hand contact with the priest or the Eucharistic minister or the deacon, or it, there's a lot of people having hands touched. And I'm just saying, it is a legitimate virus, and it can legitimately spread from person to person through contact as such. And so it's worth being questionable about. However, if the other hand, the priest would touch the wet surface, and they knew it, they, they could, could go sanitize. They could walk to the side. I mean, there's sanitizer in every, uh, you know, sacristy right now. There's sanitizer in every church right now. So, yeah, they could even put a sanitizer near the priest if he felt like he had been, um, you know, contaminated. He could sanitize right then and there. So, but the other part is just simply respect for Jesus. You know, I see so many people fumbling Jesus right now, especially with the masks and trying to manage the mask and then also the to take it help. down. The and, makes and then, it insanely hard. You sit down. And you think of just doing anything with a mask. I get claustrophobic when I wear a mask. And the truth is, is I couldn't imagine wearing one through masks. And so for these people who go through the entire mask wearing one and then come up, they may not, if they're really comfortable with it, then they probably aren't even going to realize they're wearing it until they practically have it up to their mouth, which I've seen where people take the Eucharist yeah. to their mouth and they don't even realize the mask is there. At and which they point, fumble it onto the mask and then it's... Well, they have it completely different because instead of having the normal two hands like they normally would use... they got to pull the mask down. they got to take one off, pull the mask down, and receive it in a different way. And on the entire time, they're yeah. freaked out because their mask is down for a second. Yeah. So... It's got it, it's, it's, it's really pure, mis it's, it's mishandling of point. Jesus. Let's put it this way. So, you know, it wouldn't bother me so much, but this is the Lord, 
you know, and I think people are more afraid of the virus than they have fear for the Lord. Legitimate desire. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're quaking in your boots. Fear of the Lord means legitimate desire to honor him, his utmost, his highest. How do we help serve Jesus in this uh, corona crisis? So number one, you know, masses can't be shut down again. That's not canonically correct. We have a right to the sacraments. I'm not trying to be crass or rude or, uh, you know, prideful. It just is. We, we as Catholics, have a right to the sacraments, uh, Eucharist, uh, penance, uh, anointing of the sick. It has been stripped away from us. We should be up in arms. We should be um, in the streets enough yelling about the missing of the, our rights. Enough people die from the flu and other viruses during the cold and flu season that honestly, if we're going to shut them down for COVID, we're just going to have to shut them down every year, which is, I'm pretty sure you can see that's kind of crazy. So, yeah, we need to have some common sense with COVID. That was the uh, original topic of our discussion, wasn't it? So, Praise the Lord. We know that we want him to be honored and glorified more than anything else on the earth. And if we start there, then we begin to have love and care for our neighbor. And then we begin to have respect for one another. And so instead of panic and terror and ridicule for those of us that are not able to wear a mask or that is not that we do not think is necessary because a virus again can't jump you. Honestly, people caring for their neighbor like that too is just kind of it's probably the best way to stop the virus. And I'll draw an analogy from this is the fact that you literally have people from across the world trying everything from a complete lockdown heavy mask wearing and social distancing orders all the way to staying completely open. And the thing is, is that in all of these countries, states, cities, you name it, one thing in common, they haven't stopped the virus. It's still gone around. It's still killed people and that's terrible, but they haven't stopped it. They're not going to stop it. And we're just going to have to be as smart as possible about it, protecting those who need, who have the most risk from it or even just allowing the people who may have risk from it to decide whether they think it's worth for them to do things like go shopping, go out, go to church or not, because those people are the ones that we need to protect. However, so if we just have love for our neighbor, we need to realize that people like mom's Margaret, mom and the Margaret and Mary, as mom explained earlier, people like that who might be at risk from it, but whose lives are ruined from being shut down from it, we just need to understand that we need to come to the point where we need to find the best way to help as many people as possible. And that is allowing people to have their own risk assessments and also having people understand that if they are sick, they should stay home and not infect other people. Right. It's not too hard. And if we do that, it's probably, it's going to go through our population, but it's gone through our population even when we've locked down, even when people have worn masks even when people have social distance, even when people have shut down church. So we might as well keep churches open. We might as well allow people to decide for themselves whether it's worth risking for them or not. And the truth is, is when it comes down to a question of limitless grace or physical harm, we should probably go for the grace. Absolutely. So God is good and he will always continue to protect us. And I think that just this is we're kind of getting to our closing points, but um, I think that sometimes we're called to be martyrs for the faith. And if the church or the government wants to protect every last person from every last little tiny virus, 
then we're going to have a time where we're, we're not only panicked, but we also don't have a chance to be the hero that we're called to be. You know, they have these signs in the healthcare facilities or in front of the hospitals now, heroes work here. Well, is that really true? Or are they just hiding behind that they want to socially lock down the ERs, not let people come to visit you at the hospital, not let priests into the hospitals? It's kind of weird. It's almost like a strange social nightmare. So what I want to say is live, suffer, or die. We do it for Jesus. And the other thing is that we shouldn't have fear for death if we have true love for Jesus. So let God be praised and let us truly have some common sense with COVID. We'll probably have to see you again in like another week because we basically covered maybe half of what we wanted to get to, but it's just not enough time in single show sometimes. So That's right. Thanks so much, Matt, for joining me today. And uh, we uh, hope that all of you will be well. Pray for us. Uh, you know, we have um, keep on running our, our family home, our domestic church. We have to um, keep praying for one another, uh, working to save lives and to help others. Um, God is good, and he will protect us and guide us. So may God bless you all. Let's finish with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear God, shower us with your mercy and your love. Protect us from all anxiety as we wait in joyful hope. And we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to One Body Stewarding God's Creation. If you're a business that can help support this One Body show, please know you'll receive three underwriting spots per show, and the show runs five times a week. Plus, you'll be listed as a sponsor on the One Body page of Divine Mercy Radio's website. If interested, please call me, Donetta, at 785-621-4110. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, 101.7 KJDM Salina, 88.1 KBDM Hayes, and 88.1 KRTT Great Band. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.